this morning, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Mark, chapter number 6. Sort of unintentionally, for the last five weeks, this makes six, we've been speaking about life's greatest. We've talked about life's greatest pleasure, life's greatest treasure, life's greatest command, life's greatest question, life's greatest discovery. This morning I want to speak to you about life's greatest obstacle. Mark chapter 6 verse 1, and he, that is Christ, went out from thence and came into his own country, that is Nazareth and that general area. And his disciples follow him, and when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty works, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone whenever I say that life is tough. I don't think there's anyone here that would say for a moment that they have been exempted from troubles and trials. Life is tough, and it demands that we overcome a lot of different obstacles in life. And one of our biggest problems is that we try to justify our failures by blaming something or maybe someone instead of ourselves. And that's why this story is so very important because it speaks about life's greatest obstacle. It doesn't have anything to do with something or someone, but rather within ourselves. It's interesting for several reasons. For one thing, there, there were numerous times whenever the Bible says the people were amazed with Christ, but this is only one of two times when we read that He was amazed at them. One time was the faith of the centurion. It says that he, he was amazed at the faith of the centurion. But notice here, the other time, he is astonished at the lack of faith of those in his own hometown. And you stop and think about it. Both faith and unbelief are extremely powerful. One is able to deliver, the other destroys. And here we see our Lord's concern for people putting him in a place of difficulty and danger. He had been there before. In fact, this is his second trip to Nazareth. He had been there before, and on the other occasion, they despised what he said, in fact, wanted to kill him and to cast him over a cliff. And you have to wonder to yourself, why in the world go back to a place like that? 
It would have been a whole lot easier just to say, you know, forget that. I'll go somewhere else. I'll go somewhere where people love me, where they respect me, where they're willing to, to follow me. But instead he goes back and it's noteworthy that he gives these people what I'll call a second chance. And he did it because for one thing, he had a love for people. Amen. And whenever you have a, a love for people, for lost souls, it'll make you do amazing things. Secondly, we find here a lesson for the disciples because he is about to send them out on a mission if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that he's going to send them on a mission. They needed his example. They needed the exhortation from him. And they needed the experience of what they were going through. They were right there at his side when all of this transpired. They needed to learn what they were up against. They needed to learn the importance of faith. They needed to learn about the danger of unbelief. And that's what we see here, the obstacle of unbelief. Now, as I read this, these verses, this section here, and we consider this event in our Lord's life, no doubt disappointing to Him, there are three things that leap out at us. We see that there's a glorious opportunity and a grievous offense and then the great obstacle. So this morning we're going to talk about life's greatest obstacle. But first of all, here in verse 1, we see the glorious opportunity. And notice the word He in verse 1. That's speaking about Jesus. Now anytime that, that anything is speaking about Jesus, you know something exciting is in store. Amen. The truth is you can't study any part of the Bible unless you take Jesus into consideration. You go all the way back to Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to the end of the New Testament, and it's all about Jesus. So this is the person that the story centers upon. But notice the place. The place is Nazareth. This is his hometown. It's not where he was born, but it was where he was raised. His hometown, his, his relatives lived there, his friends lived there. He's been raised among these people. And keep in mind, they had been able to witness his perfection. The perfection of his life. Nobody could point a finger at him and say, Oh, I remember when he did this or he did that, something that was wrong. They had heard his proclamations. He had been there before. They had heard what he proclaimed from his lips. And... Uh, Evidently, they didn't take note of it, but they had the opportunity. That's the idea, an opportunity. And it's so amazing how sometimes we fail to, to see what is right under our nose. Jesus raised among them, but their attention is on other things. They, they said, isn't this the carpenter? I mean, this is the son of Mary. And uh, they have this wonderful privilege, and they're focused on... Everything, it seems like, other than who He is. 
Instead of realizing that He is the Son of God and putting their trust in Him, they're raising these questions that there, you know, there seems to be no reason for Him having the wisdom that He does and the ability that He does. Remember, before this visit, there have been several miracles take place and people have been talking about that. You would think that's where their focus would be. You would think their focus would be on putting their trust in Him. And that this is the purpose of the visit here with the intent of doing great things there. He had been doing those miraculous things and now he goes there with the same desire to do marvelous things there. And evidently that involved more than physical healing. Think about that for a moment. Because it did say he laid hands on a few sick folks and healed them. So he did that. But he had planned on doing greater things than that. Sometimes we get the idea that physical healing is the most wonderful thing that God could ever do in our life. And that's just not true. It's a wonderful thing whenever we see God work and God heals someone. But there are more important things than physical needs. And that is our spiritual needs. And when he went there to do great things, it involved more than just the physical. Now, we need to make a personal application to this because I'm convinced that Christ still wants to do great things today. We think about living here in America where we have been so richly blessed more than any other nation on the face of this earth. And even then, we think about different parts of our country where you know, maybe there are not any good, sound Baptist churches for people to attend. And we live in an area where there are several that can be found. We think about, you know, the millions of people that have never been able to attend a church where they hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that opportunity every single service. What a glorious opportunity we have. Not only for just, you know, the blessings of God upon us, but the ability for us to minister to those around us. We have all of these opportunities. But notice in verse 2 and 3, there is a grievous offense here because, and I'm not talking about an offense on the Lord's part. I'm talking about their attitude toward Him. Notice it says they were offended at Him. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he's done no wrong whatsoever. His life has been spotless. He's gone about doing good. And now it says they are offended at him. And the reason, no doubt, is because he didn't fit in their mold. They wanted a Messiah that would come and deliver them from the Roman government. They would have accepted him as the king had he promised to do that. By the way, he's going to do something a whole lot better than that, but it just wasn't on the timetable at that moment, and they wasn't willing to wait. They wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, and they didn't understand that, that he was the one making the rules. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And for them to be offended at him is beyond amazing, and yet there are multitudes today that resent and reject the claims of Christ, the commands of Christ, the counsel of Christ, and they despise the preacher that dares tell them the truth about themselves. They're offended by what the Bible declares, that they're vile sinners and that Jesus is the only hope of heaven. It's so amazing to me that 
people that claim to be Bible believers, they claim to be Christians, and you quote John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And all of a sudden, they're offended. Like, you know, that's just not fair to make, you know, Christianity so exclusive that, you know, that only those that believe in Christ, you know, could possibly go to heaven. So many people, religious people, talk about there being many different ways to heaven. And Jesus declares, no, no, there's only one. And it's amazing how unpopular we'll be whenever we make such claims as that. But look, we make that claim because that's what the Bible teaches. Man says that there is good in every person. And that, you know, what we need to do is just work to bring out the good in every person. They say, you can find good in everyone. No, you can't. We're all dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. We're all deserving of an eternal hell separated from God. That's what we deserve. That's true of me. It's true of you. It's true of every single person. And that's what people do not want to hear. They're offended today just like they were offended in that day because he didn't conform to their traditions and their desires. Now we get down to the great obstacle and it's clear that it was unbelief that robbed them of these great blessings. I don't think anything's changed, do you? Because unbelief is still at the very root of all of our problems today. It affects every single area of our life. It deceives our heart, for one thing. We're deceived. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's wicked. We can't depend upon the feelings of our heart. And unbelief deceives us and motivates us to accept things that are mere theory or so-called science and speculation and what have you, instead of the clear teaching of God's Word. It deceives our heart. It diverts our attention, as I said just a minute ago. These people want to talk about, isn't this the son of Mary? Is he, he just, he's just a carpenter. They're talking about all of this stuff. What's that got to do with anything? I mean, they knew all of that. that. That's nothing new. Instead of, you know, them giving him his rightful place here, their attention is diverted to other things. And that's what happens with a person that, that is filled with unbelief instead of faith in God. It deprives us of hope. Think about the great hope that we have as a result of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and an unbeliever doesn't have that hope. It disfigures our character. Most of all, you know, we look at all of those negative effects, the way that it, you know, affects us and, and the damage it does to us. But the worst thing about unbelief is the fact that it dishonors our Lord. To say that what He said isn't true, that it can't be relied upon, that you can't depend upon what God said. But if you can't depend on what God said, you can't depend upon anything. And let me tell you, your own personal reasoning and theories is on that list. You can't depend upon yourself. As Jeremiah says, it's the way of man is not in himself. It's not a man that walketh to direct his steps. We don't have that ability. Nobody. 
You can send someone off to college to the finest university. They can get all of the degrees that are imaginable, and yet they, without God's guidance, do not have the ability to direct their own steps. So it does all of those things, dishonoring the Lord, but making it personal. Notice here, it destroys our chance for a blessing. Have you ever stopped to think about all of the great things that God wants to do for you, for us, just as it was there in Nazareth? I really believe that God wants to do more for us than what we allow Him to do. Psalm 78 speaks about the children of Israel and says, And they limited the Holy One of Israel. Let that sink in for a moment. Puny, scrawny man put limitations on a holy, all-powerful God. That's no reflection on his ability, of course. We know that God can do anything, but God has chosen to bestow his blessings upon those who trust him. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that without faith it's impossible to please God. In fact, we read in Romans that whatever is not of faith is sin. The only way for us to be able to please God, the only way for us to secure the blessings of God is through faith in God. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Why would we do that to ourselves? I mean, if someone just said, look, I don't know how much money you're going to need to survive or how much you might want to spend on the to enjoy the things of life, but I'm going to give you a, you know, here, here's a blank check, just, you know, what, whatever you want to make it out for. And for you to, you know, say, well, I, $100 ought to be enough. Well, that's not going to last any time. Why would you deprive yourself of the possibilities of a promise by somebody that you trust? That makes sense? And whenever God, again and again and again, has assured us of His desire to bring blessings upon us. Why would we handcuff God? Why would we limit God? God said, look, I'm taking you out of Egypt. But that's only part of the plan. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you through the wilderness. And I'm going to take you into the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. You won't have to build any houses. They're already there. You won't have to plant any vineyards. They're already there. I'm going to take those things from the heathen because of their sin against me. I'm going to give all of those things to you. And yet they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And that's what's going on here at Nazareth. He went there with the idea of doing great things. And instead of that... They put shackles on God, so to speak. A lot of folks want the benefits of being a believer without actually being a believer. But real faith always affects our behavior. That's what James was all about when he talked about, you know, the evidence of our faith as being works. He's not saying for one moment that works has anything to do with our salvation. Works is not the cause of our salvation. It is the result. It's the result of our saving faith, you see. And if you're trusting the Lord, you'll be following the Lord. It's just that simple. If you're not following the Lord, if you don't love the Lord, if you don't obey the Lord, 
then that's evidence that you're really not trusting the Lord. So what could it be that God wants to do at Lakeway Baptist Church this morning? What great thing might God want to do in somebody's life? How about, how about the forgiveness of sin? There are no doubt folks here, you know, that, that have never been saved. And their number one need is not better health, not more finances. Their number one need is the forgiveness of sin. The only thing that will keep you from that is your unbelief. Forgiveness of sin. I was writing an article the other day, and I'm glad Tim had us to sing that song without him. It was written by Mylon Lefebvre about three or four years. I can't remember exactly. I think it was 1962. Three or four years later, we sang that song, The Morning I Trusted Christ as My Savior, and then surrendered to preach two months later. And I'll never forget that song, the way it impacted me during the invitation without Him. Think about that, without Him. And I knew that my number one need above everything else was forgiveness of my sins. I about had a spell this morning, Bev, and I was coming down the road on the way to church, and I don't know, I can't remember the details what brought it up, but I happened to remember uh, and commented on the fact that, uh, that there was, uh, back when I was in high school, uh, a girl, not a girlfriend, but a girl that uh, was a good friend, probably the best friend I had in high school, uh, and, and I, I I was telling Bev, and she had written in my yearbook, I'd forgot all about it, and Bev reminded me as soon as I brought it up exactly what she said. And, uh, and over and over she had said it to me, and she put it in her yearbook, she said, uh, be good to Bev. I haven't forgot what I'm talking about. I bring that up because I wish that I had listened and I wish I could have said I did that because I surely wasn't good to Bev. I wasn't good to my kids. I wasn't good to anyone or good for anything up until the day that I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Until that day by faith, I realized that without Him, that I was lost. Without Him, I was dying. Without Him, I was like a ship without a sail. There was no hope whatsoever. And thank God, just through simple faith, I didn't know what I was doing. The preacher that morning said, I don't think I'd ever heard him say it before, and I don't recommend preachers do it. But he said, I know some of you are struggling and I know that the devil is fighting trying to keep you from trusting Christ this morning. He said, just pick up one foot and just and, and start toward the aisle and see if God doesn't help you. And I thought, well, I'm as tough as anybody in this church and I can do that. And silly me, I just I, I picked up one foot and the next thing I know, I was going down the aisle and I was on my face before God. I don't remember what I said, what I prayed or anything else, but somewhere, somewhere between back there and up here, I put my trust in Christ. And I was saved through just simple faith. I didn't have to do so many push-ups, turn any cartwheels or anything like it. Just simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you this morning, because of unbelief, 
it will rob you of the forgiveness of sin. It will rob you of the deliverance from sin. God didn't just forgive me. And I've often said, you know, it would have been a wonderful thing if God said, look, son, I'm going to forgive you of all your sin, and whenever you die, I promise you I'll take you to my heaven. But it's going to take me a while to get you out of the honky-tonks and the bars. I'm going to have to work on that. And maybe in a month or so, you can change bar stools and get closer and closer and closer to the door, and finally I'll get you out of here. No, no. God didn't work that way. God got me out of there in one giant step. It's the same step I took when I trusted Christ as my Savior, and it was a step of faith. Don't rob yourself of the deliverance from sin, the forgiveness of sin, and strength for your struggles. I said at the very beginning, life is tough. It's tough for all of us. We need strength that is beyond anything we have or anything anyone can give us. We need strength. And that strength comes from the same place that we found forgiveness and deliverance. And that's in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't deprive yourself of that. Don't don't let Satan rob you of that. God has promised to give you the strength that you need. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. If Paul could do it, I can do it. And if I can do it, you can do it. And if you can do it, we can all do it. Amen? We can have the strength that we need for the struggle. Whatever the struggle is doesn't make any difference. There is strength available in Christ. But, but it doesn't end there. There's a peace that passeth all understanding. You know, whenever you know that you are a guilty sinner in God's sight and you know that your sins have hurt other people, it, it's something that just tears you up inside. I mean, look, if you're trying to please God, it certainly does. Where in the world can you find peace to deal with all of those past offenses for the horrible things you've done? I, I hate a bully about as much as anything to think of somebody sucker punching someone else. And maybe the reason I do is because that's what I was. I've walked up to people that I didn't even know and just walk up and just hit them as hard as I could right between the eyes. I didn't even know. I don't know why I hit them. I didn't care. I just wanted to hurt somebody. I remember when I was in the seventh or eighth grade and some kid was walking out of the bakery. I went across the street from the malt shop and I saw him walking down through there and he had all of his donuts and I, I just wiped that poor kid out. Uh, let me tell you, look, years later, that was eating at me, and to this day I regret having done those foolish things. So where, where do you find peace? And where do you find peace whenever you're, whenever you're going through great difficulties? Where do you find peace when the doctor says one of your children is sick? And I remember whenever Tim just is a little baby and he had to have an operation, and he's sitting there in the office, and uh, Bev and I am talking to these two doctors, and and all of a sudden, one of them, I think, asked Bev, is he okay? I was about to pass out and hit the floor. Because here my little baby boy is going to have to have an operation. And it was getting to him. Look, where do you find peace whenever your loved ones are going through great trials and difficulties? Whenever the future is uncertain, where do you find peace? You find it the same place in the same way 
that you found the forgiveness of sins and deliverance from sin, and that's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't deprive yourself of that peace that passeth all understanding and joy that's unspeakable and full of glory and a love that passeth knowledge, a purpose that will empower you and a hope that will endure regardless of what you're going through. Now notice in verse number 5, this one word, there. It doesn't say that he couldn't do any mighty works, right? Now, wouldn't that be awful if it just said, you know, he couldn't do any mighty works. He went to Nazareth, his hometown. There were all of these people in need, but he couldn't do anything. doesn't say that. It was there. Notice, he could there do no mighty works. You see, the problem wasn't with him. It never is. They lost the benefits of his blessings. Why? Simply because they did not believe. Unbelief is a terrible, horrible sin. It not only affects, you know, our attitude concerning God's promises, it affects our attitude toward His warnings. We just, you know, we don't believe Him. God says, you know, be not deceived. God's not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth it shall he also reap. Unbelief says you don't have to pay attention to that. Just ignore that warning. That'll be uncomfortable for you to live that way. God's expecting too much from you. You'll miss out on the best things of life if you do that. Just go ahead and sow your wild oats. Just live it up. Just enjoy life. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die and it won't matter anyway. That's what the devil would have you to believe. And the Lord says, no, no, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you're going to reap. And faith says, I believe that and it protects us. We talk about being sinful beings and we think about God being a just God and the fact that because God is just, because He is holy, that He must punish sin. And when we think about all of the different kinds of sins, for example, when we make this list, and we'd be a whole lot better off if we'd just forget about trying to list the sins and sum it all up. Because here, look, this is the root of all sin. This is the mother sin, the root of every other sin, because this is the only damning sin, and that's unbelief. You can rob banks and still go to heaven. You can get drunk, get high, still go to heaven. You can commit any sin and still go to heaven if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But without faith, you don't have any hope whatsoever. You see, unbelief is the damning sin. That's what... That's what makes unbelief so horrible because it's the only sin for which God condemns us. He he said to those in His day that you are condemned already. Why were they condemned already? Because they did not believe. Now some folks would say, well, I I, I, I just can't believe that stuff that you Christians believe. But that's a lie. 
They would, they could, you know, if they would. Whenever somebody says, you know, I can't, look, the only ones who can't believe are those who won't believe. You can't blame somebody else. You can't blame something else. You've got to blame yourself. Because if you would believe, you could believe. That's possible of everyone. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I know God, look, if you couldn't believe, if you chose to, then God certainly wouldn't be a righteous God to damn you to a devil's hell if you didn't have a choice in it, right? And if whenever it says without faith it's impossible to please God, then you must be able to exercise faith in God if God expects you to please Him. Isn't that right? Wouldn't it be silly for God to tell you to do something that was absolutely, totally impossible? So when it comes to faith, it's something you could do if you would do. And here's the thing about it. Because some of you might be sitting here and you say, well, I know I should, I know maybe I could, but I don't. I've got news for you. Acts 17, verse 30 says, And God commandeth, did you get that? Commandeth, it's not a suggestion. Commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That means to change your mind. If you're here today as an unbeliever, it's time you repented and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't limit God. Let God do all of the mighty works in your life that He wants to. You'll never, ever, ever regret doing it God's way. Amen? Well, I'm sure out there in the wilderness and all of those people being buried every single day. Every single day. An entire generation died there in the wilderness because of their unbelief. It didn't have to be that way. Had they just trusted God, they would have been in the land of promise. Land flowing with milk and honey. But there they are out in the wilderness. Isn't it time that you come in out of the wilderness? We years ago used to preach tent meetings down in Kentucky. And, and there was a woman, her name was Mabel. In fact, she had about 40, 11 kids. I, I, man, she had kids everywhere. The good news about that. I, I, I don't ever remember meeting her husband, but every time we'd have a, a tent meeting down there in the hills of Kentucky, her and the kids would show up, and and uh, generally they would end up singing. And it was so wonderful seeing all those kids singing. But I'll never forget one of the songs they sang, and it, we didn't know what was going on, had never heard this song. It was going to have a special, and all of a sudden everything was quiet, nobody was up here. And all of a sudden, here comes some little kid down the aisle singing uh, Up Out of the Wilderness. Is that, is that the first word, it? Uh, up Out of the Wilderness. This kid sang all the way down, come up here, and here come another one. After that. And, and finally, they were all up there. And the song had to do with God bringing us out of the wilderness. And boy, by the time all of those kids got up there and they were singing full chorus, 
I'm telling you what, it just melted your heart. But, but think about it. God wants you to bring you up out of the wilderness of sin. And He wants to do mighty works, great things in your life. And there's just one thing that'll stop Him. And that's unbelief. That's the greatest obstacle in life for you to overcome. And you can overcome that obstacle the moment you decide to repent, to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Would you do that here this morning? Say, I'm I'm tired of life like it is. I want everything God has for me. I want that joy and that peace. I want those things you've been talking about, preacher. All right, here they are, right here for you, if you'll trust Him. Let's all stand. Father, how we thank You, Lord, for not only what You've done, but Lord, for the wonderful things You've promised to do. And Lord, I, I just pray that this morning that, that You'll forgive us of the times that we've doubted your veracity, times that we've doubted the greatness of your power. We've doubted your willingness to do things that are supernatural, things we never expected. The many times that we've prayed, but it was really not a prayer of faith, but it was just words of doubt. And Lord, I pray this morning that you'll forgive us of our unbelief Help us to trust You for each and everything that we stand in need of. And I pray before we leave here this morning that You'll do some mighty work in somebody's life today and be glorified as a result of it in Jesus' name. While we stand and as we sing and those awaiting baptism, if You'll come please.